Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora. Welcome to Episode 5 of From Zero, The Business of Drugs. In this episode, we'll look at how the drug market in New Zealand works, why it is the way it is, who makes the money, and the way all those things shape which drugs we take. In 1920, the American federal government amended its constitution to prohibit the production, importation, transport and sale of alcoholic beverages. It was the great experiment of prohibition. What happened subsequently over the 13 years till repeal became a case study in the economics of illicit drug markets. First, obviously, you had to be a criminal to sell alcohol. The ability of the federal government to regulate anything about alcoholic drinks was removed. And, perhaps most interestingly, the kind of alcoholic drinks people consumed changed. Until 1920, there had been a steady move in alcohol consumption away from distilled spirits towards beer. The trend halted and reversed with prohibition, while overall alcohol consumption probably declined, consumption of hard liquor rocketed. And why not? Spirits were quicker and easier to manufacture, far easier to distribute, and delivered more bang for the illicit buck. It was a supplier-driven market. Bear that in mind when you consider the anecdotal claims that in some New Zealand communities in 2016, methamphetamine, P, is displacing marijuana as the most common social drug. I'll let Prime Minister John Key, speaking at the recent opening of the expanded higher ground rehab facility, explain what an awesome business meth is. Sorry for the slightly rough quality of this recording. Why is that the case? Like, why is um, methamphetamine you know, both highly used in New Zealand and um, why is it here? So this, if you want to understand any of it, I reckon is as simple as this. And it's fundamentally market arbitrage. So if you can go to Mexico and buy $300 million street value in New Zealand of methamphetamine for $10 million. Then you say to yourself, OK, imagine if you're a gang that is reducing the forefront of both manufacturing and distribution of that drug in Mexico. How much did they pay to produce that? And the answer is a million bucks. Australia and New Zealand have the highest price for methamphetamine in the developed world. So you, you can, in theory, be a gang in Mexico or some other part of the world that produces it at roughly this rate and have 300 doses. And in theory, in theory, the Prime Minister wasn't quite right about Mexico. Most meth reaching New Zealand is manufactured in China or sometimes the Pacific. But his point about the huge margins available is spot on. The PM isn't the only one I've spoken to to explain the drug market in blunt business terms. Superintendent Virginia Labar, Police National Manager, Organised Crime. We're well aware across the world there's all sorts of um, commodities and it's what's in demand by people in the community that uh, want to buy illicit goods and pay a good price for them. 
So it, it's that, that consistent factor of a, an illicit good that's in demand. Yep, effectively, yes, mm. most definitely. How have things changed in the past decade? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think with um, globalisation, um, the, the barriers uh, around the world to people to do business has been diminished, which is good for, you know, good legal business. And, um, of course, then uh, people that are committing crime or um, utilising or looking for ways to make good money um, exploit those opportunities. And that has really just advanced availability of markets for um, the likes of different sorts of drugs. There has been one very big change in this illicit good. It arrives as a finished product. When P first reared its head, it was largely cooked up from the pseudoephedrine and pharmacy decongestants. That wasn't a bad business. The yield from a single packet of Sudafed could easily be a couple of hundred dollars worth of meth. After the government made those products almost impossible to get, local manufacturers switched to cooking with Contact NT, a pseudoephedrine-based decongestant made in huge quantities in China and smuggled here. This was a little like the way the New Zealand car industry used to run. It was hard to import whole cars, so you imported car parts and assembled them into Morris's and Toyota's here. Now everyone agrees that most meth in circulation here has been imported as a finished product. As writer and researcher Matt Black notes, this change was embraced by the local criminals because it actually lowered their risk. Yeah, well there is probably quite a lot of that and I think there was a market tendency towards that because it makes a lot of sense. You don't have to go through the risk of cooking here. I mean if you're going to import your contact NT then it makes more sense to simply import the finished product. Why would you set yourself up in a place where you need all the glassware and the running water and the constant noise and all this, you know, all the risk that it brings on you? You might as well just take one risk and bring in the finished product. So not having to actually cook meth meant no clandestine laboratories, no nasty chemicals. And Black speculates that the same principle might be having an impact on the cannabis market. Everybody laments that it's very hard to find, so I guess the police have been doing a good job there on either you know cutting it down or the fact is that meth is so profitable that the people traditionally who would deal weed have turned their eyes to that instead because the profit margins are so much higher. We don't really have any major opiate industry in New Zealand that I'm aware of, heroin I'm talking about there. Cocaine, possibly, but again, it's very expensive, between 350 and $450 a gram at a street level. Um, so you're talking about a reasonably small market there. I mean, it's probably an insatiable market that would grow with availability, but again, it's just not as profitable as P. The margins are not as big, so if you're taking the risk, which is the same risk in the eyes of the law, you know, it's a class A drug with the same prison sentences, you might as well go where the margin is highest. So is meth the only drug that's economically compelling now? Well, I think they're probably all economically compelling and they're much more profitable than having a day job, you know, where you're paying tax. Um, but I think meth is definitely the most profitable Whangarei lawyer Kelly Ellis is seeing the same thing happen in Northland. When it comes to the sort of the real business of uh, marijuana, that used to be sort of you know heavily dominated by um, pretty organised criminals and gangs. 
uh, and they have uh, now um, moved um, more and more of their um, human resources into uh, methamphetamine simply because there's a greater profit margin to be made. Might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb, I suppose. You're not the first person I've heard say this, that, that meth is edging out cannabis because it's easier and, and more profitable. Oh, look, I had a, yeah, a, a wicked old but uh, enjoyable client uh, before Christmas who said, Whangarei, uh, uh, the town where you can't buy a tinny, uh, meaning a cannabis tinny, uh, can't buy a tinny but you can uh, get an ounce of meth on tick. That's quite worrying. That, that sounds quite alarming to me. Well, it is extremely worrying, and uh, a place like Whangarei, which doesn't have a, uh, um, which is a poor town and hasn't had very much uh, uh, money put into it by the government over the years, it means that there's a lot of unemployment, and uh, the the prospects of people earning enough money to be able to buy a 40-inch TV or a Nanamuskuri CD for uh, their auntie's birthday are pretty slim, and so if you've got a business which is offering you an exclusive franchise. Uh, exclusive territory, uh, product support, and $12,000 wholesale worth of stock on consignment, then it's extremely tempting for these particularly young, unemployed, vulnerable people to say, hey, yeah, look, I'll have a crack at that. And these, of course, are the street dealers who hope that in two weeks they're going to be able to return and give $12,000 to the uh, supplier and pocket um, a similar amount themselves uh, it's very attractive, but unfortunately it often doesn't work out that way. Those things you've listed sound like they could have come from the brochure of a franchising operation. <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't say. The only difference is that in this business, people don't sue each other. Um, they go around and see each other with meat cleavers and, uh, and that kind of thing. Like Kelly Ellis, Matt Black also believes drug dealing dreams generally don't work out. Uh, I've met a wide variety of people in the course of my research. I don't think that anyone who's in the meth industry that you could really describe as smart. You meet people who have a basic level of intelligence and they may even have an education, but by its very nature, inherently, to be involved in it, there's a level of self-delusion. And it's just not a clever industry to be involved in. It's a destructive drug on societies and communities. Um, you have to be deluding yourself about that first and foremost if you think it's a good idea Um, and secondly I've never really known anyone to sustain a long-term profit from it it always seems to catch up with people one way or another you have to deal with people who like to talk people it's human nature they like to show off about who they know or what they know and invariably eventually someone's going to find out Um, You know, there may be a handful of people who've been able to do it and retire on the profits, but I've certainly never come across anyone like that in my research. How many of the people you came across were getting high on their own supply? How many were using? Pretty much all of them, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them like to talk a game about not using, you know, and that they wouldn't use, but uh, I didn't know anyone like that eventually. I think they probably all started out to supply their own habit. Um, and it kind of escalated from there. Well, that's a constraint right there on the viability of the business, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it is. I mean, it doesn't. You know, there's not many businesses that you can successfully run if you're up for 72 hours or longer, you know, without sleep. Um, and also, I think the drug, by its very nature, 
you know, it leads on to psychoses, which is also not probably conducive to the successful running of a business. People who are going to use the product are inevitably going to fail eventually. Another characteristic of illicit businesses is that they're strongly hierarchical. Remember Gavin, the weed dealer from episode two? He has no idea where his product comes from because he has no vision beyond the guy he buys from. We've disguised his voice. You can work out why. My personal experience, uh, I only deal with one or two people above me. I've heard stories that there are networks running, but I usually just deal with one person above me who gets it from someone else. We meet up when it's available. Uh, We exchange the goods for money and... That's it, basically. And the people he deals with? Uh, just average Joe blogs. Uh, one guy, you know, he's he's a family man. And if you saw him, you're in a, at a party in a room, you wouldn't be, able to, wouldn't be able to spot him. In August, the police Operation Rosella busted a meth supply operation in West Auckland. Five people were arrested and drugs and money were seized. Detective Senior Sergeant Stan Brown of the Waitemata Police, who led the operation, explains what his team sees in the meth business. There's several structures as such. The bigger organisations use a a business model or a structure. Um, There is a manager over uh, several cooks, not just one cook. Uh, They have area distribution through their little contacts, and then obviously that goes down through the chain to the meth houses or the drug houses, um, and then to your small-time dealers that are are just selling to their mates and the like just to back-end of their own. Um, issues with the, with the usage. It's also worth looking at another big drug bust led by Stan Brown last year. His team brought down a big West Auckland weed business. That business was complex and costly. Thousands of metres of floor space over multiple locations, ventilation, air filters, special wiring, even a commercial shredder to dispose of plant stalks. And, unlike Operation Rosella, the people producing the drug actually got caught. Cannabis takes space, time and a lot of electricity to produce indoors, plus it's bulky to transport. All those things increase business risk. There are ways of managing the risk. I've been told of commercial landlords who turned a blind eye to cannabis growing in exchange for a slice of the profit, but it's a tricky and complex business. So yes, there was a reason the prohibition bootleggers of the 20s went for hard liquor over beer. Years of police effort created the indoor growing industry. Even in Northland, says Kelly Ellis, the idea of a seasonal rural harvest from the land is largely history now. There are people who grow the odd plant here and there and some of them might be quite ambitious ambitious and grow a number of plants. But there certainly aren't, um, you know, paddocks of the stuff growing or even significant patches as they used to call them because they're too easily spotted from the air. Looked at through... um, I think infrared, apparently uh, cannabis plants stand out like uh, like dog's balls. In- indoor pot, let's get real about it. Less chance of possums or bad weather hitting it. Uh, it's stronger. Uh, it's available year-round at a tinny shop near you. Um, this is the cost of prohibition, and uh, you'd have to say that the war against cannabis um, hasn't really succeeded. 
Some light was shed on the market recently by the latest annual Arrestee Drug Use Monitoring Report. It shows increasing availability of meth in Christchurch, Wellington and Whangarei and a lowering of prices. I asked Chris Wilkins of Massey University's Shaw Centre, which compiles the research, what else stood out. We found declining use of cannabis actually and also declining availability of cannabis. And that's really come out particularly in the South Island where, as I said, we found um, increasing meth use. So it's an interesting proposition that those two things are related, but it's a really interesting finding to find that those markets, the availability is going down. Do we have any idea why that might be? A big factor here is synthetic cannabinoids, which used to be legal in New Zealand for a number of years, Um, and there was a trial with the bigger regulated market. And we have found that it seems that 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 legal market has made an impact on illegal cannabis. So we did do some research where we asked arrestees to use synthetic cannabis, and 20% of that group said that they had reduced their uh, use of natural cannabis because of that of the the easier access to synthetic cannabinoids. So I think that may have been a a factor. And on the supply side, we did hear some anecdotal accounts that, well, lots of people involved in growing natural cannabis clandestinely might have moved over to the synthetic cannabinoid market because it's much easier to, to do. You're listening to From Zero, a series about New Zealanders and drugs. I'm Russell Brown. There are other models at work in the drug business, including the one at the centre of Alex Winter's 2015 documentary, Deep Web. In the summer of 2011, an ad for the Silk Road appeared on the darknet. The Silk Road was an underground exchange for any type of goods, but mostly it was used for drugs. There have always been drug markets online, but none with the scale, sophistication, and ease of use as the Silk Road. It would not remain underground for long. Hundreds of thousands of users use the impossible to trace website which sells drugs, forged documents, and even hitmen. It's called the Silk Road. Just look at some of the 13,000 items offered through that underground site. Ultra-clean cocaine, clean and real LSD, high-grade MDMA, also known as Molly, all with fast and free shipping. It generated roughly $1.2 billion in sales, with nearly 960,000 users, both buyers and sellers, in the U.S. and more than a dozen other countries worldwide. YouTube videos like this one with 15,000 views tell anyone how to download an untraceable technology known as Tor that pulls data from thousands of computers worldwide to create this wide open marketplace. Winter's film tells the story of how Silk Road was brought down and how the wrong man may be in prison for it. But multiple successes have since sprung up. These drug markets have a different structure to those in the real world. They're flatter and multiple customers can see all vendors at once. They deliver by post. Do they reach into New Zealand? You bet. Last year I obtained a pill pressed in New Zealand from ingredients imported through the dark web and had it tested by ESR, the same agency that tests drugs for the police and customs. Although the pill had been sold as MDMA or ecstasy, it proved to contain four different chemicals and no MDMA. We'll look more closely at what's actually in the pills in the next episode of From Zero. 
Customs Cargo Operations Manager Bruce Berry explained to Stuff last year how it all works. You can go through the dark web, or even just the open web, and buy five pills of ecstasy and get it sent to a P.O. box. People have taken the anonymity of the web to mean it's not the same as strapping drugs to your body and walking through the airport. A lot of the stuff that we're seeing on the web ordering space is personal use stuff. It's people who are saying, I don't need to deal with a gang member, I don't have to put myself at risk. Or they're thinking that, not realising that everything you do on the internet is recoverable. Although importing through the postal system lends itself to personal use or small group distribution, Virginia Labar says it can also be used to spread risk by larger operations. Clearly it's got to come across the border and it's a narrow, narrow focal point where um, customs can look at the packages and investigate that and look for different concealment um, opportunities. And obviously from some of the recent seizures, um, they're doing very well in that space. Do that, does that kind of importing tend to be a, a, a smaller operation? Well, I don't know about that. Um, traditionally, different um, syndicates send out, you know, a thousand packages of fifty grams, and if you know half of them got through, that's good. Clearly, it's the same as drug mules on aircraft. Generally, my understanding is that um, internationally, we accept there's probably not just one drug mule. If there's one on a plane, there might be two because law enforcement will get distracted or, and then one might get through out of the three. So it's just the odds that they play. It's popularly supposed that organised drug supply is the work of the gangs, but most of the people I spoke to said that it depends on what you mean by gang. The big, widely dispersed gangs, Black Power and the Mongrel Mob, generally don't themselves run such operations, although some of their members might. The smaller, whiter and more business-like gangs, the so-called motorcycle gangs like the Headhunters, are a different matter. Matt Black. It is those motorcycle gangs who are the top of the food chain when it comes to the manufacture and supply. And I think you'll find that that is probably borne out by a police strategy about who it is that they're targeting, if you're able to get them to open up and talk about it, um, that is. But, yep, definitely in my experience, those are the gangs who are at the top of the tree. Kelly Ellis. It's not too simple to say it's gangs, but it's not just gangs. Um, I mean, there are the obvious um, are the obvious villains who um, feature regularly in the newspapers and uh, the names of the various um, organisations they work for uh, come out. Uh, but I think that, you know, generally speaking, it is because often these things require a lot of muscle. So, uh, you know, somebody's in your um, in your patch selling cannabis and you've told them that they've got to start selling pee for you, um, uh, as was the case with um, a few years ago uh, in South Auckland. Uh, the next thing you know, you end up with a whole load of killer bees turning up at the place, firearms out, because they know that the other people who are selling tinnies are going to try and defend their, um, literally their, patch. So, you know, you end up with these um, uh, pretty uh, significant uh, inter-gang conflicts which, um, you know, spill out onto the streets and, um, and into the news. And then there is what the police refer to as Asian organised crime, Auckland's underground. Asian New Zealanders in general have no more to do with these gangs than I have with the headhunters, but their influence has grown substantially in the last decade. No journalist has covered this rise more closely than the New Zealand Herald's Jared Savage. I asked him whether the growth of the syndicates was down to the powerful position they hold in the meth supply chain. 
We've had Asian organised crime or transnational crime groups in New Zealand for, for quite some time, and, and back in the day they would often trade more in sort of black market power or sort of extortion or fraud type things. Meth became the commodity of choice for them because of their connections back back in their home countries. You know, meth is made from pseudoephedrine as one of the key ingredients. Um, they can get large quantities of pseudoephedrine through over-the-counter um, cold and flu medication called contact NT. Um, basically, so anyone really with a connection between China and New Zealand can source, uh, you know, a, a key ingredient. Um, they also have really large um, methamphetamine sort of super labs, basically, where you know huge amounts of um, of meth can be cooked at a um, you know at a, at a continuous rate cheaply and then sold over here for a for a large, um, you know, big margin on the in profit. So um, basically, since early 2000, we've had, you know, the methamphetamine has sort of has boomed here. It's had ups and downs, but along the way, the price, purity, and, and availability of, of meth seems to sort of um, stay pretty constant. So they're making good money, good money off the back of it. What uh, is happening to all that money? Is it being laundered within New Zealand? Well, that's another one that. You don't know what you don't know, but often, I mean, a lot of it is getting shipped back overseas, back to whether or not that's China, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, you know, you hear stories of money being boxed up in cardboard boxes and, you know, in CWCs or um, or electronically. That's, I mean, that's a lot easier now to for the police to sort of monitor and trace the money. Um, a lot of it goes back overseas. Um, a lot of it, too, is spent here in New Zealand. So whenever there's... Um, a substantial sort of police investigation, but our seize assets as well makes often large amounts of cash. Um, you know, I've read stories about you know a million a million dollars plus being found sitting on a table in an apartment, um, luxury cars, Ferraris, and, and the like, um, and also substantial asset portfolios of you know property, um, residential property or commercial buildings as well. So um, that is a, a really big focus for the police now, and of course under the Criminal Proceeds Recovery Act, they only have to prove that to a civil level of proof, so that's on the balance of probabilities, not the much higher beyond reasonable doubt. So, you know, obviously we're in about situations where someone might have been acquitted of the criminal charge but ended up losing their ill-gotten gains because of the um, it's a slightly easier threshold for the police to meet. What are the connections with local gangs? The, the Asian... Organised crime sort of is very much about the importation and smuggling of either methamphetamine or pseudoephedrine into the country, and then basically they've got quite close relationships with some of the organised um, motorcycle gangs in terms of distribution. Um, the headhunters in particular had tend to have quite strong sort of um, Asian connections there with um, with the source ingredients. Back in the day, like there was used to be a lot more sort of turf wars, a lot more aggro between the different sort of gangs in New Zealand, and sort of the, the Asians, um, in terms of their influence coming in, was more sort of saying, "Well, there's plenty of business to go around. Why don't we just divvy this up rather than you know um, attracting police attention by by attacking one another?" What idea do we have about about the dollar value of this trade? Well, the police value it at over a billion dollars a year, but it, it is a huge. Business. There's a lot of money um, to be made, and people clip the ticket as it goes along the, the supply chain. Um, so people should be in no doubt that we're, we're talking, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of, of 
money being made every single year. Um, if, you know, and, that, and that may be an underestimate. The people making the real money are sort of using the, their foot soldiers to sort of keep themselves at, at arm's length, really. Um, and, and you know, in particular, it's sort of it can often be young um, young students who might have come over here in sort of homestay situations or English language schools. Um, they might not have any friends, or they got friends, but you know, they might not have that sort of strong family support. They meet they meet these older guys at you know um, karaoke bars or in the casino and you know rubbing up shoulders with them sort of take a more of a brotherly sort of um, interest in them and before you know they you know they're lending the money to gamble or to have you know to party with and then you know all of a sudden you're having to you know do do a favour to sort of you know maintain that relationship and and we've seen countless examples of that over the years where where young guys. In their, in their teens or the early 20s, um, rolling around with quite a bit of money in the back pocket or in a flash car, and um, but they're the ones getting pinged. Um, yeah, you often see these younger guys getting getting locked up um, for basically being a pawn in a, in a slightly bigger game. There's another economic factor in the mix here, labour supply. Kelly Ellis explains. Uh, in any kind of operation uh, where there is significant danger for workers, um, usually in um, you know, <laughs> uh, good societies, the, um, the the value of their labour goes up. So you know, you'd hope that a, a deep sea um, diver who does welding, fifteen uh, percent of whom die, uh, would get paid more than um, somebody who's packing cornflakes, kind of thing. And uh, the reason why drugs are expensive is because there is significant danger in the production and distribution of them. And that uh, well, you know, the specific danger is getting busted by the police and going to jail. And, of course, this um, impact on the human capital of the drug industry uh, uh, is reflected in prices. So the more people are arrested and go to jail, all it does is drive the prices up, except... That model, which sounds basic enough, what's happening in New Zealand is there are so many, um, uh, so much unemployment and so many willing new entrants to that human capital that in actual fact the price of methamphetamine hasn't gone up. If anything, it's come down. And you've described yourself as a, as a compliance cost for people in that industry, which is a very business-like way of putting it. Well, you know, perhaps I'm a little bit cynical when I'm saying that, but um, uh, often I find, you know, sort of dealing with um, some of the worst criminals in uh, New Zealand, uh, dealing with drug dealers uh, is um, often a much more uh, businesslike and um, and pleasant experience. They uh, all know that if they get caught, they're highly likely to go to jail. They've all got sort of realistic expectations of um, the cost of their compliance if they get caught. And they see the lawyer as being a, um, a literally a business cost, so um, uh, they don't sort of resent it in the way that uh, a manipulative pedophile might object to everything, including a lawyer's bill, uh, or, um, or or some other um, offender who um, you know is probably motivated by narcissistic personality disorder rather than pure profit, <laughs> which of course is what the drug dealers are motivated by. Almost every characteristic of the drug market and the changes in those characteristics over time are to do with its illicit status. So, what might a legal market look like? In the US, legitimate opportunities to grow and produce cannabis, whether for medicine or recreation, have had one significant consumer effect, a better product. I asked Krishna Andavolu, the host of the show Weedicat on the Viceland channel on Sky, about that. 
we're at a high point as far as the cultivation of marijuana is concerned in the United States. The variety, the quality, the potency, um, the flavor is can be astounding. And and it's like that stuff existed five years ago. It was just hard to find. You'd have to have a really good connect. Now it's kind of like all the stuff is like that, and it's harder to find not high quality weed. Is the market there already at the the stage where you can you can ask for weed that does what it says on the label? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, if you go to dispensaries, there are pot geeks, very knowledgeable people behind the counter who can help you sort of get what you're looking for. So if they don't have the specific thing that you want, you can be referred to something that might be equally helpful or, or different in some fashion, but are along the same lines. But what I think is interesting is sort of the next level stuff about like companies that are sort of taking specific cannabinoids and terpenes, extracting them from any kind of flower and then making reco- like recombining them for specific effects and flavors. And I think that's like clearly there's a future there because it can do precisely what you're asking. Yeah, I want to feel energetic and creative. Give me the pot that does that. But in the U.S. states that have so far legalized the sale of cannabis, the black market has not disappeared. A feature in The Atlantic magazine this year put that down to the great promise of legalization, the tax bounty. Washington State, for example, launched legal weed with total sales taxes of 44%. Street dealers can and do undercut that price. The magazine noted that when Prohibition ended in 1933, Washington State saw off the criminal bootleggers more effectively than any other by imposing a very low excise rate on the new legal market for its first three years. When the tax went up sharply, it didn't matter. The black market was gone. At any rate, as Kelly Ellis points out, apart from the apex predators, the prime economic beneficiaries of the current criminal market are criminal lawyers. She'd nonetheless be happy to see all drugs decriminalised. The reality is I'm speaking very much against interest. It would hurt my income significantly because as a lawyer, um, my business interest is in having more and more things made illegal. So, you know, the more crime there is, the better it is for me. So um, this would hurt my business significantly, but I think that it would reduce the harm in the community, which ultimately has to be what we're aiming for. In the next episode of From Zero, we take a look at the argument for harm reduction and, in particular, the prospect of stands at this summer's music festivals where the punters can have their pills checked to confirm that they are what they're supposed to be and not dangerous. Peter Dunn thinks it's an idea with merit, the police are quietly supportive, and the Drug Foundation and festival promoters are keen. So, what's the problem? Catch you then. From Zero is a seven-part podcast series for RNZ. You can subscribe or listen to every episode of From Zero on iTunes or at radionz.co.nz forward slash series. Don't forget to rate us, and we're also on Spotify. This episode was produced by Russell Brown and engineered by Jeremy Veal, Rangi Powick and Blair Stagpole. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, Adobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.